Hi, and welcome to episode 16 of Proof. To wrap up our first season, Jacinda, Kevin, and I, along with Dan the Cameraman, are here to answer some of your questions, discuss what making the season was like for us, and fill in some of the things that we learned while investigating that didn't make it onto the show. So over the course of the podcast, we've heard the journey of the bullings of Amanda and Michael going from believing that Kane and Lee were guilty to now believing they're not. So that was a really interesting journey to witness. And Susan, I was wondering for you personally, how have your feelings about this case changed from when we first started into where we are today? It was a few years ago now that I first heard about this case. And from the first time I spoke to Lee, I knew something was wrong with the case. I didn't have much material to go on for quite a while. So what I had was mostly the um, appellate decision from 1999, which verified a lot of what Lee was telling me. But beyond that, I had things that Lee Clark was explaining about this case and going on his word. I mean, it sounded like a messed up situation. But of course, until you see documents, you never know what's really going on beneath the surface. And then as we got more documents in the case that verified everything we've been telling me, I was very much certain that at a minimum, the entire case, the entire fact scenario presented by the prosecution was wrong and quickly came to believe that Lee and Kane were very much innocent in this case. Now, there there was a time when... I was less certain about Kane. Um, sometimes I started to wonder if, if everything Kane had said was, in fact, what had occurred. And I remember they like, kind of waving for a bit. But then by the, not even the end of the investigation, um, at a certain point, as we started to get more materials, more witnesses, for me, I became fairly certain that not only was Lee Clark innocent, but Kane's story also was not the one who fired the gun that night in the bowling's bedroom. For me this story has been a really interesting process as a storyteller. I remember Jacinda, we were working on the tightest case for our investigation discovery show. And you were working with Susan on the undisclosed version of the tightest case. And she first sort of told you about the story and you were explaining it to me. And as I got to learn more about it, I, I thought it was a really compelling story about one person and and perhaps two people who were wrongfully convicted. But I think what I never planned on was the bizarre details of the story that would emerge. Stuff with Dallas Battle and Charlie Childers, his testimony, and then Angela Bruce in the corner. I mean, it was it was sort of one thing after another, which just kind of made your head spin. So in that sense, it's like no other story I think I've ever been involved with. And uh, like Susan, I think that at the beginning, I, I was leaning towards the fact that Lee was probably wrongly convicted, but I didn't know about Kane. And I don't think we'll ever know 
exactly what happened in that room because Brian is gone. But I've come to believe that both of them are, are wrongfully convicted. And I've never been associated with a story where the, the family of the victim has come to believe that the people in prison should not be there. And certainly not prior to the legal system reaching that conclusion. That's right. You know, it's been an extraordinary journey that I feel fortunate to have played a role in telling this story. And, and to me, it also represents something great where um, Jacinda, you and I were able to sort of partner with Susan and start a new, a new podcast, um, which I've I really enjoyed. And, and this story was, was so important to be told. And I don't think we all knew exactly how important it was until after we got going with it. And without the show, I don't think that certainly not all and a great deal of information we found would have ever come to light. Yeah. I mean, the, the two of you and Dan too, he was along for, for those rides, like the amount of stuff that you guys uncovered and the amount of people that you got to speak honestly on the subject has been completely incredible. And it's been quite a, it's been quite a journey. And fortunately it's not over for these guys yet, but I feel that there's been a lot of movement forward. I hope anyway. What about you, Dan? Where did you end up landing in this case? In the beginning, I really didn't know much uh, about the case really at all at the very start. And as I kind of got to be there and meet the people and hear the stories firsthand, especially the whole thing with Charlie as well, when it's just hard to, it's hard to imagine Lee or anyone else, you know, kind of, um, how your heart could sink of like this person that you, they're trying to convince, you know, uh, or, or force them to get to say, you know, what these kids did or what they saw when it's just like hard to, you know, how that could hold up in court at all. It's, uh, I don't know. So it's just for me, it was, yeah, it was just one thing after another just like kept falling into place of just like hard to believe any of what was, you know, the decisions from, yeah, you know, all the autopsy stuff to Charlie to, um, you know, just the party, like all of these things just kind of falling away, like layer by layer as we got there to the end of like, it's just, you know, Lee, you know, the whole gang thing, the notebook, just one thing after another, just seeming ridiculous. And, and, and uh, you know, yeah, I just, I hope, you know, that uh, it can have, I mean, it seems like it's at least garnered the attention of, or helping at least with the, the Innocent Project, you know, is kind of the biggest I guess, hope at this point, right? Yeah, Lee now has counsel, which is everything. Without that, these yeah. cases never go anywhere. Yeah. Um, but with GIP's help, he has a fighting shot. I mean, that seems huge. And, and just, you know, I don't know. Yeah, just being able to, through that whole journey of trying to peel back the layers, it's at least great to, you know, that we are all able to help, you know, get it to that point to this point you know, and uh, like Kevin said you know I, it's with Kane you know that's a harder that's a harder story that you know kind of like everyone has said even you know Michael Brian's uncle you know said like no one's ever going to really know you know what went on in that room but even he agreed like it was probably an accident and you know he's served long enough for an accident you know and just that alone you know that um he's even convinced, you know, or that all of this information is convinced, even Brian's uncle that, you know. That. So there are a few reasons that I 
I do think that Kane didn't have the gun. We'll get into later. Right. But what it also comes down to me for me is that it's almost immaterial, legally speaking, who had the gun. I think we're all confident at this point. Whatever happened in the room that night was an accident. Um, so even if there's some uncertainty and, and if Brian's family is not sure if Brian actually had the gun when it went off that night or if Kane may have had it and, and fired it by accident, to some extent, it, it wouldn't matter in the courtroom. Both what Kane's admitted to doing, bringing the gun down, giving the bullet and the gun to Brian, and then playing Russian roulette with him, even if they were faking it at first, that could support an involuntary manslaughter charge, regardless of whether Brian actually had the gun when it was fired. So just adding in the fact that assuming Kane had the gun instead wouldn't necessarily mean that Kane would face any more legal jeopardy than he already was. But Susan, I thought he wasn't Kane acquitted of involuntary manslaughter. Yes, he was. So at trial, the jury was given the option to convict Lee of like murder, first degree murder. Um, but for Kane, they could convict him of first degree murder or involuntary manslaughter. The prosecutor's like, if you don't believe this whole conspiracy thing, you can also say that it was an accident and that Kane was so reckless and in what his conduct that he should be convicted of involuntary manslaughter instead. Um, but the jury said no, he was acquitted, so he can never be convicted of that. But before trial, I mean, this whole issue of who had the gun went off, it wouldn't mean a different sentence for for Kane necessarily, whichever way it happened. Jacinda, what about you? How did how did your sort of mind and impressions change of the story from when you started to now? Well, for me, I I go in with an open mind, but even after, you know, how many years of true crime have I, have I been working? Um, I also tend to think that our legal system works and that we get it right. And so I think I approach the story more so than you, Susan, in a way of um, believe, like believing that the verdict was right and someone has to prove to me that it wasn't. Um, which is, it's a little bit different. So I, I, I was looking for evidence to prove, not that they were innocent, but to prove that it was the right verdict. And I remember even driving around in the car with you, Susan and Dan, coming up with these scenarios of like, well, maybe, maybe, you know, Lee pressured Kane to do it because Lee thought that, that Brian had ratted them out for stealing the safe. And like all these different scenarios are going through my mind. Or the lover's triangle theory that apparently Battle had at one point. <laughs> Exactly. Like some some theory that would mean that they they got it right and that these kids haven't been in prison for 25 years. Right. I think I knew all along that that wasn't the case. But I think it was the Angela Bruce interview that really convinced me when when I heard her say that she was essentially felt forced to say what she said, testify the way she testified. Um, because she had been threatened that her kids would be taken from her, then it's like, oh, this. You can see how it happened. You can see how it happened, you know, and talking to all the different people about their experiences um, with Dallas Battle and the informants and feeling pressured and um, the the rule book that that never materialized. Like, I, I don't even believe there was ever a book that anyone saw. I think somebody probably knew and Kane has even admitted that he had a book where he wrote lyrics. Um, and with the Angela Bruce thing, 
the thing that really did it for me with that as well was then when Uncle Michael confirmed that you could see in your head like some people could be saying oh she's recanting or changing her story when they're talking to her but maybe she's just trying to appease them or do whatever but then he has that story he was there in dallas battle and david stewart said we have a witness we can get to testify because we can threaten to take her kids like how do you yeah and this by the way is a is a very common tactic like not just in Floyd County, but in a lot of jurisdictions. It's something I've seen again and again in these cases, and it's a real problem. It's just crazy, though. I mean, it's still so hard to believe because Lee wasn't even at that party, right? So the idea that you can just make this up and you have, what, 20, 25 people who were there, and not one of those people saw Lee, how did they think they could get away with it? Because they never talked to the others. That's how. Yeah. And they that the part I don't quite get is how they were so confident that the defense attorneys wouldn't talk to him either. That's the crazy part. You know? Yeah, that I still don't know. But you know what? They were right. The defense didn't talk to him. So <laughs> points to them, I guess. It's crazy to imagine they're just like, this person's not going to do a good job. They're not going to bring in, you know, the correct witnesses to fight. The, I don't Yeah. Just even the basic ones. It's not even like it would take a whole lot of ingenious sleuthing to, to figure this one out you just like say Angela told us the names of like four or five people who were there let's go talk to them and see if this all happened this way and I think even Angela kind of considered that like a point in her defense she she's like I told them who else was there like she wasn't trying to cover that part up like she gave them names they could use to verify the story and they wouldn't have verified it um but they never did ask yeah they instead just uh called Phil's story to testify which was easily discredited. He's Kane's uncle. And he proves that there was a party. So we know that that part isn't made up anymore because he's confirming it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered. But we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas, as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is Witnessed. 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. So where do things stand now? Um, We have a question from wonderfullymade139 on Instagram, and they write, what I don't get is with all the crazy things coming up that seem completely unethical or legal with the trial, how are Kane and Lee not getting a mistrial or something legally? Isn't there more than enough evidence to throw out the conviction? Unfortunately, that's not how post-conviction works. Um, Post-conviction is a very slow, low-odds world where most of the time you don't have a prayer of challenging your conviction. Um, And it's getting harder every year um, with the way rulings coming out from various courts, um, undermining 
the ability of defendants to challenge their conviction. So, so no, that there's no amount of evidence that would ever give you a quick ticket out. The closest you can hope for is DNA. In some jurisdictions, some cases, that will sort of fast track um, post-conviction proceedings, but not always. Sometimes they fight that too. Um, but short of the DNA, there's not a way you can just say, like, look at this. Obviously, something wrong happened here, and I'll fix it. The only method will be either for the DA in Floyd County to suddenly decide that, you know what, there's a problem here and try to go about fixing it, um, which, you know, hey, maybe it could happen. More likely, it will be fought in court through some sort of post-conviction proceeding. Who's the defendant in that case in terms of if like the GIP, the Georgia Innocent Project is like bring it to court? Is it the state that's defending themselves or how does that work? Yep. For GIP, they brought on Lee Clark's behalf. So there's two possible options for sort of post-conviction filings or two main ones. Uh, one would be a habeas corpus petition, which is sort of an old writ that is used to challenge the constitutionality of your conviction. And that is always filed where the defendants being held physically, like where where their body is located, that's the jurisdiction they bring suit in. So it would be in the, for Lee, it'd be in the county where his prison is located. Um, he'd bring suit there. Alternatively, there's something called like a motion for, um, extraordinary motion for a new trial. And that would be brought in the place where the trial originally was held. So that would be filed in Floyd County. I don't know which route would happen here, but it'd be most likely one of those would be the two main options here. And it'd be the state that would be defending. Uh, typically, it'd be the AG's office, the Attorney General's office. So the state of Georgia would be handling the sort of post-conviction side of it. I believe that Floyd County would not necessarily get involved again until if and when, knock on wood, Lee's Arcane's conviction was overturned, in which case it goes back to Floyd County and the DA there gets to decide how to handle it. Mm. Meaning they, the DA in Floyd County would decide whether or not to, to do a new trial. Hmm. which would be hard since they've lost all of the files. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but they'll magically find some of them if that happens now. We'll see. Um, and for the same scenario basically would play out for Kane. Um, first, he needs to obtain counsel. Theoretically, he could do it pro se, but of course there's that unconstitutional court order barring him from getting into court again, at least in Floyd County, um, which hopefully the court will not try to enforce. But for the most part, although their, their factual scenarios are different, their legal claims are likely to be fairly aligned. Claims that can be made for, for Lee can be made for Kane and vice versa. Well, I mean, I know it doesn't work this way, but if Lee was to be exonerated, meaning if his conviction is overturned, meaning there was no conspiracy to commit murder, and Kane has already been acquitted of manslaughter and there's no conspiracy, what would he be in prison for? For the original conviction of murder and conspiracy. Um, there are a few well-known cases where that has happened, where you have two defendants, both convicted of the same crime, same theory. The state's case is they work together side by side to accomplish a crime. One of them gets exonerated and the other is still there to this day. How can you conspire with yourself? You can't, but they don't have to convict everyone in the conspiracy. You can have everyone else in the conspiracy be acquitted and you can still be convicted. Hopefully Kane will get counsel. Yeah, and hopefully one or both of them can be in court, you know, maybe by the end of the year even. One of the things we never really talked about is, I mean, we touched on it, it was that um, Kane and Lee were tried at the same time, but they had separate legal teams. Susan, do you think that Lee 
would have been convicted had he had a separate trial? I don't think so. I mean, you can never tell with juries, especially juries in Floyd County, but I don't think they would have been able to do much. Um, they could have tried to use some evidence that was actually barred from their trial because of rules governing sort of hearsay stuff. Um, they could have tried to use Kane and like try to put him on the stand, for instance, but they didn't need to do that because he actually voluntarily did it. So there, they, there would have been a few things the state could have done differently that might have helped them a bit if the Leos tried separately. But overall, I just don't see it happening. Well, Kane has never once said that Lee was there that night. He's never, ever said that. Yeah, but they might have been hoping that originally that he would. I mean, they were hoping that. That's what Battle thought that he could convince um, Kane to do by giving him like the 20 serve 10 deal. Hmm. So one issue that remains unresolved is the forensics question in this case. Um, we had a question from Dr. Elizabeth at Dr. Practitioner on Twitter, and she writes, um, I thought Burns was the coroner and the funeral home director. Um, who did the embalming? Surely that person would know and or have record of whether an autopsy was done. Craig Burns was a uh, an embalmer. He did work at funeral homes, but he didn't have his own funeral home. He's not a director. Um, he didn't own his own place. He was just an employee there. And he also was never an employee of Henderson's, the funeral home where Brian was taken. So he would not have done the embalming in this case. As far as the autopsy goes, well, what's interesting that we learned from Brian's uncle Michael is that he recalls calling the funeral home and having them tell the family that Brian's body had been taken for an autopsy somewhere. That, that for me is one of the major unresolved issues here is whether or not that aut autopsy did occur. And at this point, I don't think we can say. I think it's possible there was something done for real and that record has not come to light. But I think it's equally possible there was never even an attempt to do an autopsy, just a paper trail of it, um, which may or may not still exist. You think that there is a possibility there was an autopsy? I do, because I just, I think it's possible. I know it's possible for the GBI to have hide autopsy stuff because they did in the Joy Watkins case. I think more likely if one happened here was with a private pathologist, a private doctor who was hired, and so there wouldn't be a GBI record necessarily. There's some evidence seems to indicate one may have been done, and perhaps the results weren't favorable to their case, so they didn't talk about it after that. Um, What's the evidence that it did happen, though, besides family members thinking there was one that happened? There are recollections about being told by the funeral home that the body had been taken for an autopsy. Um, it would kind of fit up with the idea that, like, so Craig Burns um, decides this is a murder based on his theories about what murder gunshot wounds look like. He tells Battle. Battle's like, well, shit, guess we better send that for an autopsy. And that would, would have been done in the time period between when they go to the funeral home to see the body and in between the viewing um, at Brian's grandparents' house. And there's the fact that for some reason, the death certificate or the investigator's um, death re investigation report is left unchecked, which Burns himself acknowledged was very weird and he couldn't explain and to me, suggests the paperwork here is messier than we know. Because if, if there's a yes, no answer, that would have been filled out. I suspect the reason it was not filled out at all is because the answer is complicated. And rather than do something on that sheet that would be a lie, he just didn't fill it out at all. And the sheet, there's there's a box where you can check whether it was, there was an autopsy, a toxology report. What were the other options? Not, no autopsy, external exam. Right. And it's just left blank. And it's signed by Craig Burns. Yeah, but does that lean towards, you just think that at least leans towards the possibility that there was one? Because at the same time, 
I don't know, maybe that he did that multiple times accidentally over Yeah, I, I guess for me, the better way of putting it is it means that there's more of the story here we don't know yet, that there's some sort of additional factual developments that we have not quite pinned down. But I, if there's more paper trail out there, it's possible we could figure out what happened, especially if the coroner's office ever decided to comply with the Open Records Act and give us the records we requested. Sure, yeah. Um, we have a question from... Uh, at Kurt Bianchi on Twitter, he writes, um, in Clark v. State, 1999, Georgia Supreme Court appeal, um, the ruling refers to, quote, the neurosurgeon's testimony that he found no powder burns in the victim. As I understand it, a neurosurgeon didn't examine Brian's body, correct? Uh, yes. What Kurt's referring to is the appellate decision that talks about the testimony of Brian's uh, neurosurgeon that treated him at the hospital and who testified that he did not see any evidence of gunpowder or powder burns and that in his experience self-inflicted wounds to the head go straight across that was his testimony at trial but also it was extremely inappropriate to have him there testifying because he's not a pathologist not a forensic expert um and he was likely only there at all because the state didn't have an actual medical examiner to rely on but there's a reason you use actual forensics professionals because for instance his testimony about the shot across the front of the head um, is not accurate. In fact, most the, the vast majority of self-inflicted wounds to the head are angled backwards, not straight across. But as the expert we spoke to theorized, since a wound straight across the head like that is more likely to be survivable, it makes sense that the neurosurgeon who treats living patients would encounter that more commonly, even though the majority of patients have wounds that angle backwards and they just die right away. And Brian was still alive. Yes. Sorry. The wound Brian had wouldn't usually be survivable to any degree. It's not survivable long term, but the fact he was still alive is somewhat unusual. So that could be why it was not something that his doctor had encountered commonly. And there is one last area that I think could potentially be significant here, although maybe too late now to ever prove it. One of the signs of a contact shot, a gun that's being held to the head when it was fired, is the presence of not only powder burns, like burning from the gunshot, but also soot deposit, where the gun, when it's fired, like sort of a cloud of soot goes in the air and lands on things. That's what GSR is testing for and whatnot. But in the case of a revolver, which was used here, you have sort of the cylinder, you have the, uh, where the bullet is fired, it's not only expanding energy out through the barrel, you also have soot going out around the cylinder. And there's something called cylinder gap soot deposit that can occur. And we have some photos of Brian's body before it was ever handled by anyone. It still has medical equipment taped to him. He still has, he's covered in blood, so you can't really see any wounds. There's not much visible. But one thing that is visible is two grayish patches on his hairline, um, kind of surrounding where the gunshot wound would be, if you could see it. And I wonder if perhaps this is a cylinder gap soot deposit from the revolver because it very much looks like that um, based on the images we have and that would be further confirmation that this was a uh, contact wound um, unfortunately soot like this just washes off it would not have been would not have remained um, there's no way now to confirm that's what happened but to me that's another point of evidence that makes me think that it really was brian who had the gun when it went off that and the fact that the gunpowder residue test on Kane's hands came back negative, plus the black marks on the face. If the body was to be exhumed and there was gunpowder in 
the bones of the skull, like all of that together. Would, well, that would be game over. That, that, that by itself would give you an answer. Would paint a pretty convincing picture that Kane didn't pull the trigger. Yeah. Uh, so there was a lot of interviews in the show that never made it on. We talked to a lot of people, some more credible than others in this case. A few times we would talk to witnesses in this case who seemed to have information that was very relevant. And when you're hearing it, you're like, wow, that's a big deal. Um, only for us to later discover that it was all of not. Um, but it, it's it's when you work in these cases, it's it's a reminder that the police go through the same thing and that if they find a witness who tells them a crazy story, sometimes they choose to believe it. And that becomes part of the case. I know in this case, for instance, we talked to one witness, a neighbor who lived not far from the bowlings, who, when we spoke to him, confidently told us that the night the shooting happened, Kane came to his house and confessed to him. And Jacinda, what did you think when you had when we talked to that witness? I was just confused when we talked to him because it didn't fit the timeline that we had put together. In my mind, I kept thinking, well, when would he have done that? When would he have had time? Because he was at the house, he was at the hospital, he was at the police station. It didn't make sense to me. So I, I came out thinking, uh, I don't know if I believe this guy. Yeah, but it is unnerving us when confidently tell you something that important in a case. And for no obvious reason to be lying about it. Although we later were constantly told by many people in the case not to put any credit on the stories that he was telling. We also had another witness we spoke to who told us a convoluted story about how at the courthouse, um, when all the witnesses were there waiting to be called to testify, Angela Bruce actually identified a third boy who had been with Kane and Lee at the party at her house that night, which, again, definitely never happened. Um, yeah, it, I mean, the story, as I recall, is that Angela Bruce pointed to this person and said he was there too. And that person took off running and there was a chase to find him, and bring him back to the courthouse. And, you know, it's a room full of people in this like waiting room, people who, who could be called to testify. No one else remembers this happening. Yeah, so we can be pretty confident it was uh, not a credible story. Yeah, a lot of things we've heard and just ha- tried to verify and corroborate never could. Um, you never want to just discredit someone because it sounds far-fetched, right? You have to. Yeah, you never want to like hear someone tell you something that's possibly important and be like, nah, I don't believe that. Um, you have to look into it, even if sometimes you feel silly doing so. You know, you end up spending a lot of time going down these rabbit holes um, and and they don't pan out. And, you know, you come back to right where you were before. Um, and I think we spent a lot of time doing that. Yeah. Um, for any sort of podcast like this, one of the issues in a case is trying to get good audio. And especially when it comes to interviews with defendants who are in prison. Um, and depending on jurisdiction, you often have issues with uh, like the phone quality and their access to like reliable working phones. But here is one clip uh, to show sort of the uh, the difficulties you can have in trying to get good audio from interviews with, for instance, Lee and Kane. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what to say, Susan. I mean, I don't know what to tell you about Kane's part. And I don't. I really don't know. I mean, I'm I'm at a loss for words. The only evidence that's really inqu- what's that banging sound behind you? What now? There's a, like a banging sound behind you. Oh, you hear that? Yeah. 
it's a guy over here, he's uh, slapping bags of candy on the floor, crushing them up. <laughs> Look, right. it's, it's every night around here. He does his stuff, he uh, smashes all this candy up, and he puts all these different flavor candies together, and he makes his stuff what they call crack candy, and he sells it. I'm serious, I'm serious. Bartek, I'm not no. doubting you, but like, what, what is crack candy? It's all kind of different candy made up. I know for Lee and also for Kane, this has been, I mean, they're very glad for the podcast and for the investigation we've done, but I know it's not always been easy on them. It's also just so far out of their normal existence and experiences, uh, having gone to prison so long ago now. And Lee has, he hears, talks to his dad all the time and his dad kept updated on sort of social media and what people are saying about the podcast. He called me up at one point to let me know and he was really upset and I'm like, what's, what's wrong, Lee? And he's like, this, this person wrote about the podcast and said something really mean about you. <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't appreciate the way they were sitting there trying to muddy your name. Man, why would somebody post shit like this right here? Buddy of mine told me, he said, man, he said, that, that, he said, ain't no somebody, somebody trolling. I said, somebody what? He said, man, you got guys that get on there and uh, troll these websites just making bullshit comments just because they ain't got nothing else better to do. I said, is that really a term that's used? Did you really call it troll? He said, yeah. He said, they're called trolls, man. That's all they do is troll websites, put bullshit on there. Yep, that's what a troll does. Post bullshit to cause people to get upset. Yeah. And they got me last night because I didn't even know what a troll was and I was pissed off. Yeah, it, it's crazy when you think about it. Susan, he called me earlier today um, saying the same thing. Like, I'm, you guys put yourself out there and people say mean things. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they do. It's okay. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the internet didn't exist either, right? I mean, like those guys went in just as the internet was was being born and certainly don't think they had access to it in 1996. I mean, most college students were just getting access to it. I'm going to guess another that went online. Yeah. And the interesting thing is that this story couldn't have been told 25 years ago when they went in. No, it couldn't have been. We wouldn't have had an outlet with which to tell the story and for people to follow it and for people to comment. And, you know, timing is everything. And hopefully timing is finally falling into place for these guys. Yeah. And Lee has also told me that if he ever does get out, um, he is looking forward to going to watch a lot of NASCAR races. And I told him he, he, he insisted that they're a lot of fun. And I, I told him he gets one chance to convince me. So if he gets out, I'll go to one race, one, and give it, <laughs> give it a try and see. We'll see. Maybe my mind will be changed. <laughs> I'd rather be driving the car than watching. <laughs> All right, you go enter the race and we'll go watch you from the stands. You better get a pretty big insurance policy. <laughs> <laughs> there were also, so in this case, I I am really glad that we got to talk to almost everyone we wanted to. Um, but in any case you work, you're never going to get everyone. And there's always going to be a few interviews that you just don't quite manage to get. And one of the big interviews that we failed to get uh, was with Bone Thugs and Harmony. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we really wanted to talk to someone about Crossroads and the lyrics and what those lyrics meant, because there was a lot of talk about the Crossroads and how it was a song about execution and, you know, shooting someone in the head and and how it was that about song killing narcs, killing narcs. And it was specifically being played 
when Brian was killed as like the anthem for killing him for narking. And so we just wanted to hear from the guys in Bones, Thugs and Harmony about what the song actually meant to them. And we have not been able to reach them. Yeah, Skylar, our social media manager, worked her tail off trying to get through to them and almost got there. But uh, we did, never did a get Busy Bone to get in the phone with us. <laughs> so Busy, if you're listening, give us a call. <laughs> Um, the other big interviews that we didn't get were the lawyers in this case. We weren't able to speak to any of them. Yeah. You had said early on, Susan, that when you were investigating the Joey Watkins case, it was Rex Abernathy who represented uh, Lee who, who told you about this case. So I thought, I thought he would talk to us. I knew he wouldn't because I knew how he did it before. I mean, so I tried to talk to, to Rex Abernathy for the Watkins case. He would he would eventually talk to me, but it took a long time to get there. And he was always pretty reluctant about it. Um, and Kane's attorney, Larry Barkley, he was an attorney involved in the McGarry Mitchum Reeves case. And he wouldn't talk to me for that case either. So I kind of knew going in that they wouldn't talk to us. But I hope they would. Um, I'm still hoping they will. So uh, I, I would love to hear from either or both of them if they're willing but I was also not surprised that we didn't get to talk on the record with the prosecutors in this case either. Yeah, I mean, the prosecutors have retired, so technically they would be able to speak to us. And again, you know, hopefully maybe someone will surprise us and give us a call someday. Yeah. Some of the other witnesses we didn't speak to were um, a few of the informants in the case, the jailhouse informants. Um, we did speak to some of them. They all told us uh, none of them stood by the story of, hearing a confession at all. Um, one of them told us that it was a case of battle coming to him and saying, you help us, we'll help you. But there were a few more informants that we didn't connect with. Um, one of them I was curious to hear from because according to trial testimony, he told David Stewart and Dallas Battle that he'd talk about a confession he heard if they gave him a car and some money and a new job. And he may have actually gotten the new job. That the testimony is kind of shifting on that point, but like it does sound like he actually got the job. So, yeah, the, the informed situation we we don't have a everyone on the record for. But I also feel very confident that neither Kane nor Lee actually confessed to any of them. And one of the reasons I'm so confident of that is there's no evidence that Lee and Kane were ever even in the same jail block as all of the possible informants. Minus one, which there's kind of an interesting story behind. Yeah, Terry yeah. Sarton was apparently an informant in this case. Really? Um, no, I didn't know that. Yeah, I don't think that they didn't. I, I don't. I don't know what the sequence was there or what happened, but I don't. We know that they didn't use him, obviously. So I don't know if they decided. Yeah, because his testimony wouldn't have been no good. From what I seen in the notes, I don't think it would have been much no, useful. <laughs> like I said, he was the biggest thief in. Rome, Georgia. I mean, you okay. can't take somebody forward like that and, you know, that's something good. If you had a motorcycle or anything in your front yard right now, he'd steal it. <laughs> I mean, that's just how he was. <laughs> uh, we called him Hot Dog. That was his nickname, okay? <laughs> and, uh, no, he wasn't all there. No. <laughs> Hot Dog. Look. I tell y'all, I was down there at Silver Creek swimming, and he pulled up on 15 four-wheelers within a matter of eight hours. He stole every one of them. <laughs> every one of them he stole. Hot dog. 
That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, so Terry Sarton was, from the police file we have, one of the possible informants. There's no record of, like, a formal interview with him, but there's some notes from him in there where he says that, you know, he heard this confession. And when I later asked Kane about the various Yale's informants, I hadn't at first asked him about Terry Sarton because he was not, like, a major one. But when I asked Kane about whether he had talked to anyone at all in jail about this, he gave me a surprising answer. I know my cousin, the uh, hot dog, Terry Sarton, was up there with me for a little while. Terry Sarton's your cousin? Yeah, he's my cousin. Too. He's dead now, but he, he got... He, he got moved always in the jail together because they were a bunch of them was trying to cut a wall out of the jail and escape. Yeah. Did you know he was an you informant against you? Huh? He was an no, informant. No, he never testified. Yeah, he, no, he, yeah, no he, he, he never testified. He wanted he, to. He, he wanted to go yeah, no, he gave a statement where he tried to say that you confessed to him. I didn't realize you were cousins. I know, I, I know that's a lie. And, well, Terry Sarton, as far as we can tell, is the inmate that was giving info to other inmates to help give stories wow. about you. Wow. Yeah, so when Kane was arrested, he was placed in the same block, same cell block as Terry Sarton. And there, Kane and his cousin Terry, or sorry, cousin Hot Dog, um, had talked about the case. But then Hot Dog got moved to another cell block. Um, and it seems very likely it was Hot Dog who all along helped arrange for the other inmates in this other jail block to come to Dallas Battle and give stories about how they'd supposedly heard confessions. So, yeah, it does appear that the informants in this case were orchestrated um, or arranged via someone who was willing to sort of serve as a liaison between Dallas Battle and the possible informants. Which seemed to be a consistent thing in Floyd County. Yes, this would not be the first time I've heard stories to that effect in Floyd County. Yeah. So that brings us to the unanswered questions in this case, the things that we still don't know that we'd like to. Um, We've already gone over the autopsy. For me, that's probably my number one, still want to know what happened there. Like the exact sequence of what went down and how it went down. I think there's a story there that we have yet to learn. Um, Another big one for me is Joseph Wilkins. I think it's very possible that he made initial statements to police that may have been, if not the genesis, at least a contributing motivation for the investigator's theory. And one thing that we learned from people who listened to the show and contacted us is that they recall the day after Brian's funeral, Joseph Wilkins actually went to school with the police and left with them as well. Um, and in fact, one of his old classmates had a diary and the student's diary wrote down on that day that Wilkins had, had been brought to school by the Floyd County police. Um, the student didn't have their own memory of this event anymore, but the diary itself is good evidence that it did occur. And I suspect that's another case of more records that we have yet to get, but are still out there somewhere. I mean, it could mean so many things though. If the detectives are going with this theory that it was gang retribution, they could be saying, you're next on the list, Joseph, you're next. Yep. And, you know, making it seem like he needs protection and he's in danger. And, oh, we have to escort you to school or take you out of school or whatever. Who who knows, right? Because we don't have records of it. And my point is we don't know what the motivation was, whether it was coming from Joseph or whether it was coming from the detectives. That's true. Um, 
And another unanswered question that doesn't actually matter, but I'm still kind of curious, is the pillow. Like, what what the hell actually happened there? <laughs> like, how did it really get into the, the uh, Captain Shiflet's car? Um, and where did it come from? Um, it wasn't part of the case. It wasn't part of any murder conspiracy. It has no real relevance. But I feel like there's like a Keystone Cops episode based on the entire uh, life history of the pillow. Well, it did sort of create, uh, at least within the family, this uh, kind of conspiracy of it suppose there being a second pillow in the wall and all that stuff. You know, Battle, I don't think Battle believed a lot of his own case. Yeah. From all the, the stuff we have, Battle did believe in the pillow, like genuinely, truly believe this pillow was part of the case. Maybe it was like a, a tool he was using, but given that he wanted it tested, like it seems to me he actually thought there was something to it. Well, I mean, it wasn't tested until it was found. So maybe maybe they tried to hide it. And then decided to test it. Who knows? Yeah. Well, they tried to hide it and then somebody found it and they were like, oh, whoops. <laughs> now I guess I have to test it. No, they could have just left it hidden, though. <laughs> like, I just throw in the tr- the uh, trash and pretend you never saw it. But instead, they throw it in the, the chief's, uh, the trunk of the car. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was a prank. Maybe there's a jokester on the staff at Floyd County. <laughs> it made for a good yarn, so to speak. Right? This pillow could have been you know, the, the whole idea of, oh, it could have been used as some kind of silence or to muffle the noise. And it, something that stood out there is perhaps something devious happened. I think a lot of people's minds ran with it. I mean, it worked. I'm still shocked it did, but it is inarguable that like it actually worked extremely well. Yeah, 25 years later, that's the one thing everyone remembers. Even people who don't remember anything else about the case will say, wasn't there a pillow involved? Yeah, so Battle was wrong about the pillow, but he was also right that it was good evidence if you can tell a story about it that the jury likes to hear. Um. We also have a sort of unanswered question about how Charlie Childers came to be part of this case in the first place. Because this story about Charlie seeing someone, it doesn't seem to come from Charlie. And the story of trials, it came from Wayne. And Wayne denies it came from him, which I don't know. It could, could go either way. Whether it could. Numbers or he's, yeah, or he did say it or he didn't. Or yeah, he forgot what he said. Or... But one thing Wayne did confirm, and I actually entirely believe this is that the letter that was written to the Roman News Tribune after um, the conviction that was signed by Wayne supposedly and says and Wayne is angry at the Bowling family for not getting the thanks he and his brother deserve. Um, that did not come from him. I showed him the letter. He was like, I can't even write. <laughs> Why do you think I would have done that? <laughs> and I asked him, like, do you think your mother would do something like that? And he's like, yeah, she would have. <laughs> um, and he also made an odd comment to me at one point. He said, you know, the, our family and the Bowling's family go way back. They've always been there for us. So we thought, why not be there for them? And I couldn't get him to elaborate what he meant by that. But I I wonder if his mother may have been um, possibly the origin of the, the Charlie Childers story. Which would then explain why she felt they deserved to be thanked and wrote the letter to the paper. Yeah. Yep. It could definitely explain why she felt that she was somehow shorted. Like, I gave you Charlie. <laughs> I gave you this witness. And you didn't publicly thank me for it. Yeah. Um, there's also the uh, sort of a, a one lingering question I have has to do with the exhumation. Now, the official affidavit that was signed by Brian's parents to support the exhumation says that she recalls seeing a document that had the gang rules laid out. 
and that the gang rules had this thing about not narking and that it was for the free birds and it had like membership list and Kane was in it. What she describes in the affidavit sounds almost exactly like the supposed gang rule book that Debbie Kelly would later be interviewed about. And there's an unexplained story there about how the Bowling's affidavit incorporates this detail about the rule book when the rule book was not in the casket and later is only ever known by Debbie Kelly. Yeah, I guess we don't know for sure what she's describing. It does sound like the rule book because she did testify to seeing the, the drawing of the eagle mm-hmm. and agreeing to let Joseph put that into Brian's casket. So it doesn't seem like that's what she was talking about. Um, yeah, it, it is one of those questions I don't know that we'll ever have an answer to. Yeah, and... There was another layer of mystery added to it, though, when I spoke to Craig Burns. Now, Craig Burns does not remember, says he does not remember um, examining Brian's body or investigation or what happened with the autopsy. But he did remember the exhumation. Um, And here's what he had to say about that. Seems like this is the case where somebody said that the murder weapon had been put into the casket and weeks later he was disinterred and we looked for a weapon and there were none. But you remember they were looking for a gun or? Somebody had made the statement that the gun had been slipped into the casket. And at first, I ignored that statement because I had heard things like that over the years on different cases and it, it didn't have a lot of weight with me well when you kept kept hearing it and kept hearing it uh i would I, i'm theorizing now but the county police would either call me or i would have called them and i would say let's put this to rest once and for all they wanted to see inside the casket, the type of casket it was, the mattress would come out, and you could look down in there and see what was there. And when everybody was happy, I think there was a piece of paper or a love note or something, but there was no gun in there. You don't think they found anything? I think they found a piece of paper. Yeah, so in the quote, it's just it's just he says, yeah, we thought the gun that was used to kill Brian was in the casket with him, so we took the body to find it, and all we found was a note instead. Wait, that's what they thought? They thought someone had secretly thrown the gun in there? That's what Craig Burns recalls, and he seems to actually remember the exhumation pretty well, um, even though he remembers nothing else. And his memory is that they were going for a the murder weapon, didn't find it, all they found was a note. I mean, I guess, you know, with all the rumors swirling around, you know, it could have been anything that was, you know, like, oh, I heard they put a gun in there. I heard they put a note in there. I heard that, you know. Yeah. yeah. And it almost makes me wonder if there's like a, a, some more stuff we're missing that, that would give birth to this rumor. But we do know that it's something that Brian's mother long believed in. Deborah told me, of course, she died years and years ago. I really didn't make nothing of it uh-huh. because I thought she was still grieving at the time. She um, was because she did kept saying there's, she there's also a gun buried or a phone in Josh's trailer. But she told us that 
she thought there was another gun that Lee took off with, ditched it in the graveyard or up there where those trailers are at the top of the hill. And I swear she used to try to get me to go crawl up under that trailer to dig for this gun. There's no reason to think the revolver that was found in the room and belonged to Kane's father was not the gun used to kill Brian. Um, but it's another indication that there was some element of this investigation that we still don't know about and don't have records to document. It also lends itself to the idea that, like um, we've heard Amanda say and we've heard Uncle Michael say, there's just so many unanswered questions. And when there's a lot of unanswered questions, you're looking for answers. You're looking for other theories. You're looking for ways to have it make sense. Yeah. And if one of those questions that Brian's mom had was, if this wasn't the gun, if Kane didn't do it, then who did? And maybe there, you know, you can see how your mind would go to a second gun theory or, you know, whatever. Um, well, you kind of need a second gun theory. I mean, in the end, they didn't need it. They just kind of ignored it. But the actual theory that they're going with a trial is that Lee shot Brian through the window, then tossed the gun in and like managed to have it land like just un between Brian's legs. I mean, the second gun actually kind of makes more sense, even though there's no evidence for it. Yeah. And of course, they never fingerprinted or tested the gun. That Yeah. So. And one other interesting thing that Jacinda and I found while working on this case um, has to do with another case with Floyd County from 94. And when we learned what had happened in it, I think for me, it was kind of like a light bulb moment because it was sort of deja vu. In 1994, there was a shooting in Floyd County outside of a trailer that was initially reported to be a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Then a couple days later, the investigators decide that actually it had been a murder. Um, and one of the witnesses was a woman who was who changed her story. She initially said it had been self-inflicted. And she said, oh, no, it was actually a murder. And the story was that this other guy at the trailer had done it because the victim was a dark. Pretty which, crazy. Yeah, it seems like an awful coincidence to have in one county, like two years apart, two apparently self-inflicted shootings that were discovered to secretly be murders because of narking. And I wonder if this prior case may have influenced Battle's thinking in the bowling case. And, and that ended up happening that it, it went to trial and this person was or someone else was convicted, or they never found that person? Or? Nope, he was convicted. Um, I gotta say, it's another case I've got questions about from the little we know about so far, because our buddy Craig Burns also testified in that one as well. Ooh, nice. Yeah, and in fact, there was no uh, gunshot residue found on the supposed killer's hands, but there was gunshot residue on the victim's hands. They actually tested the hands in that case, and it was positive, and still they're like, eh, it's an accident. It doesn't really mean anything. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. Craig Burns, batting 100. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know what's also, so I realized, I, I texted Jacinda when it finally occurred to me. Um, my grandfather died in Floyd County in the brief 18-month span when Craig Burns was active as coroner. And I, I don't know for sure. There's no records about it now. But I I can just see my grandmother. If she had gotten a bill for, for that, for his death, she would have paid it. And I wonder still if, if, I mean, how would anyone know that you're, that you don't, I mean, you pay for so many things with funerals and, how, and stuff. And how, how would you not, like, how would a normal person not realize, oh yeah, I shouldn't be paying for this other procedure as well. Yeah. And how she was then after he died. Like I just can hundred percent see if, and I have no idea if he did or not, cause there's no record of it. Um, we don't have all the records here, but like it, it fits the pattern of a lot of the cases he handled. And if he had sent her a bill, I know she would have paid it. She would have got her checkbook out 
written it and sent it and never questioned it for a moment. What was the fallout around Floyd County when everyone found out that Burns had been illegally charging people for years? That's a good question, yeah. You know, weirdly muted. There people remember it, but I can't, it doesn't seem like there was a huge like outcry or anything. Which is so crazy. I mean, even those numbers that you guys were listing in that in that last episode of, of talking about Craig Burns, like, you know, seventy five hundred dollars to like someone yeah. who like this that woman who's, you know, like, I can't afford this. He's like, Look, you know, in his response or whatever, it's like, I'm gonna cut it in half, you know, you only owe me, you know, thirty five hundred bucks, you know, because I'm a nice guy and I have money in a rainy day fund. Like, what the fuck? Like Yeah. I mean, and he would, he really played on the, like this whole, like, like he used Christianity a lot in his sort of pitch of like getting close to families and like getting their trust and then sending these bills and like in a way that made it seem like he's been compassionate about it. Yeah. Um, Which makes it even sleazier. Like. Yeah. And the 166 fake postmortems. I, again, like we mentioned in the last sidebar, but I just don't think it's possible. And we know it's not possible for him to have been doing this and not have been not even caught, but not to have others in Floyd County know about it and be okay with it, which apparently they were to some degree. At least some people in the uh, county administration were. Or he even says when they come to um, search his house that he'd been tipped off by friends in the police department. Right, which is so fucked up. Like, what did he say? Like, yeah, I've known you're coming for two weeks. You're not going to find anything. Like, (laughs) it's like... Okay, you should probably stop talking because you're just sounding, you know, spitting off guilty lines, you know. Yeah. Oh, conveniently, my hard drive just had a massive crash. Whoopsie. Yeah. <laughs> At least I still have friends in the Floyd County Police Department. Good for me. Yeah. Like, oh, my God. Um, you think Floyd County would have reacted more and having a defendant tell them straight up that, like, there's someone on the force undermining your investigations? You'd think they'd want to try and nail down who that was. But. Maybe they did. Maybe they did, and it was a quiet. Uh, yeah, slap on the wrist or something. Quiet. You yeah. have to leave. Yeah. Early retirement. So it's been a long road, but this is it for season one of Proof, and hopefully we'll be back soon with a second season of Proof with an entirely new case. Yeah, we have a few cases we're looking at now, but if you have any cases you want to suggest us, please reach out. Um, we'd love to hear from you. This brings us to the end of season one of Proof, at least for now. But the case of Lee Clark and Kane's story is still ongoing, and we will be back to keep you updated on everything that happens. So make sure you're subscribed to our feed to catch future episodes when they're released, and be sure to follow us on social media. Thanks for listening to our first season, and we look forward to coming back with more.